Greetings, everyone. This is Peter Diarger with the 11th episode of Y2K and Autobiography, a podcast intended to reclaim the narrative of Y2K. This episode was prompted by a couple of news reports over the last couple of months, so well in the middle of COVID-19. The, the title for this one is Missed Opportunities, Y2K and Legacy Systems. And it's peculiar in the sense it's not really about what Y2K was all about, but some of the things that we missed in Y2K, in a way, it's about one of the major failings of the Y2K remediations that went on you know, all around the world by all types of organizations. Now, a quick update about the podcast itself. Well, it's coming along. We have right now about 400 active subscribers. In other words, every time we put out a release, about 400 people are downloading it and eventually getting to it. The eventually part is interesting. When we started this back in January, when we put out a new release, pretty much all the subscribers would watch it or listen to it within the first day or two. And that's just normal for podcasts. Uh, we listen to these things usually as we're driving into work. Then along comes COVID-19 and we're not driving as much. So podcast activity all around the world, while the number of podcasters have skyrocketed for obvious reasons, we've got to do something when we're not doing anything, the number of people listening to podcasts on a daily basis has actually decreased. Podcasting seems to be something that we listen to on the way to work during our commute. Most of us have about an hour a day. When you take that hour in the morning and an hour in the evening out of your schedule, you're not in the car listening, then activity goes down, I guess. Right now, we have, with this episode, we have 11 episodes up. And we have 17 interviews. The 17 interviews are only available in the on-demand area, and that's at www.vimeo.com slash on-demand slash Y2K. And to be truthful, the it's the on-demand area that really has the history, uh, the, the feedback and the reports from the people who were in the trenches. The part that you're listening to, if you're only picking this up on iTunes and Podbean and a couple of other places, this is more the biography part where I'm talking about what I experienced and what I know to be happening. I think the real value is in the interviews. Your mileage may differ. I've been asked who the target audience for this whole series is. It's not for the highly technical. It's for the people who worked on the project and want to get some validation that what they did was, was good. Uh, we've been told, we, the people who worked on Y2K, have been told to take Y2K off our resumes, which I think is a disservice to the amount of effort that went on. It's also for the people who you know, have heard about Y2K, but don't really have firsthand experience about it. And their perception would be, rightfully so, that it was a hoax and a fraud, because that's the media story. Most articles, not all, most reports, not all, uh, discussions about Y2K are talking about, well, nothing happened, and therefore all that money was spent for no good reason. That wasn't the case, and that's the reason why we have this podcast. It's also for myself. There were many, many times I did more, like I've said often, I've done more than 2,000 media interviews on Y2K. And in very, very few of them, I can count on one hand how many good interviews I had. I was never really given the opportunity to discuss the 
nuances of Y2K. That's what we've been doing in this podcast series. Talking about the ins and outs, the going a little bit deeper than what you're allowed to do in a 30-second soundbite. So part of it is to get my story out as well. And some of you have responded well to that and are enjoying it. So that's great. One thing I would request if you're listening to this, if you know someone who believes it was a fraud, if you know someone who worked on it, if you know someone who doesn't feel that they got due credit, then by all means, point them to this Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, point them to the podcast. All you have to do is mention the title, Y2K, an autobiography, and then anybody with access to Google can find us. So why this particular episode? Why am I going to be talking about legacy systems? Because in a way, legacy systems don't have that much to do with Y2K. And that's an outrageous statement, some of you will say. Some of you will say it had everything to do with legacy systems. Well, it didn't, it didn't. Recently, there was a call out for COBOL programmers. It turned out that COVID-19 strained the unemployment systems of various states around the U.S. You went from whatever the percentage of unemployed were, and it skyrocketed overnight. And because of that, some of the old legacy systems, quote-unquote, some of the legacy systems started to fail. So a call went out, even with a, telef uh, a TV spot by the New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, to say, we're the COBOL programmers. We need them. So many of our departments of labor across the country are still on COBOL system. You know, very, very old technology, Kelly said Tuesday. Our Department of Labor had recognized that was an issue and had initiated modernization. And unfortunately, that's something that takes time. <laughs> that's an understatement. This virus, COVID-19, interfered, and so they had to cease the transition to a much more robust system. So they're operating on really old stuff. And the solution they thought that they needed was more COBOL programmers, that somehow COBOL programmers could fix the problems with these legacy systems. Quite frankly, that demonstrates a lack of understanding of what the real problem with legacy systems is all about. Some of the discussions on the internet in places like Reddit and Quora and some of the other technical forums are talking about, well, how difficult is it to learn COBOL? And where is the best book? They mentioned Marak's COBOL book as being by far the best. And they're saying, you know, how do I go about learning COBOL? Because it's not exactly something you can run on an iPad. And if you run it on a PC, you have to do some, well, some finagling to get the system to the point where you can actually write code on your PC that actually would run on a mainframe computer because there's the difference, the beginning of the difference anyway. Legacy systems are typically perceived as belonging and residing on large mainframe systems. Your PC doesn't count as that. So this call goes out to how do I learn COBOL? And some of the responses to it are rather interesting. Sorry, but why do you want to learn COBOL? Uh, someone responds, a job for life maybe? Because if legacy systems are there, and they're going to be there forever, then maybe learning COBOL is a good idea. The response, which is absolutely natural, is this. Yeah, but there's so many languages with better career prospects than being a COBOL programmer on legacy systems. 
which he used to do, by the way, but he wouldn't be writing any new code, but he would be supporting and enhancing existing systems. The web-based languages would be a better choice. And there's a lot of truth in that response. If a university decided to start teaching COBOL next semester, how many people do you think would sign up for that course? My guess, not too many. Why? For the reasons just mentioned in that response. Why do you want to learn COBOL? The dead language. The only thing you're going to be doing is maintenance. But the call did go out from New Jersey for COBOL programmers, the same way it did when Y2K was active. We had lots of people pulled out of retirement to work on systems during the Y2K remediation days. Now, we're pushing 2020. <laughs> COBOL systems were being designed and written in 1970s and 1980s. So, if you were 30 or 40 back then, you are now 80 or 90 now. So, <laughs> there are not too many COBOL programmers around. How big a deal is that? Well, Let's understand first what a legacy system is. Let's define it. A legacy system, something that's been around for a while. How long? A couple of decades? Sometimes 10. Technology changes fast in our sphere, in the IT field. It changes overnight. What was hot 10 years ago is ancient now. If you've got a system running in something that was hot 10 years ago, Today, it's a legacy system, not quite the ones we were talking about with Y2K, not quite the ones that were are being used to run the employments, unemployment systems in New Jersey, but legacy systems nevertheless. So part of the definition is that they're old, relatively speaking. They may be very functional. They may be doing the job. A lot of the systems we had in Y2K in the 1990s had been running for 20 or 30 years and working quite fine. The only problem they had was, along comes this two-digit year problem, and now they become decrepit and need to be fixed, and we had to go in and fix them. And there were a lot of them out there. They are expensive to maintain. Why? Well, reduced skill pool to draw upon. Fewer and fewer COBOL programmers means they're going to be more and more expensive to hire. They're also more complicated. They're not as pretty and as clean as they once were. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So they are difficult to understand. Documentation quite often is lacking. Uh, expertise is fading, as I said. They are not exactly flexible. And quite often, they are mission critical. They've been around so long, and we depend upon them so much that they're delicate. And it's dangerous to start messing around with them if we don't really understand what they're doing. More to the point, though, legacy systems typically rely on old solutions that were hampered by technological constraints. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've got a computer that only has, and now this is going to seem incomprehensible to you, if you have a computer system that only has 64K of working memory, that means your language, your operating system, all have to fit in that. And when you're processing data, you're not pulling in entire databases into working memory. What you're doing is picking up a piece of data here, piece of data there, bringing it together, processing it, putting a piece of data outside of the working memory, sometimes in you know, temporary storage. 
You'll go out and get it again later in the program when you need it. But a lot of the legacy systems were constrained by the technology. And this is why when people start saying, well, we need better, or rather we need more COBOL programmers, that is not necessarily the solution to legacy system problems. And I sincerely doubt that it's going to be the solution to the unemployment systems down in the States. It's not about code. It's about design. And these systems were not designed to handle the workload generated by 40 million unemployed people. They're, they're simply not set up that way. And no matter how many COBOL programmers you have, you're not going to solve the problem because it's not a coding problem. Let's talk about COBOL for a second. COBOL was designed, created in 1959, the Conference on Data Systems Languages, uh, CODASYL, C-O-D-A-S-Y-L. It was intended to be readable by non-technical business managers. The idea was that programming should not be the sole domain of programmers. It should be possible for a business manager to look at the code and understand it to be able to read it the same way they'd read a Clive Clustler novel. Uh, a little bit ambitious, if you ask me. But within that notion, there's a certain amount of truth. It's a common business-oriented language designed to be read by non-technical people. How difficult is it to learn how to use COBOL? It's not that difficult. I'm not a great programmer. I was a good programmer. I was in an interview once, a job interview, on a Thursday afternoon many, many years ago. The name of the organization, if I remember correctly, was Fireman's Fund Insurance Company in Toronto. I had an interview on a Thursday afternoon. I was asked during the interview if I knew how to program. Sorry, that's not how they phrased it. I was asked in the interview if I could program in COBOL. Now, to be honest, at, up until that point of being asked that question, I had never written a single line of code in COBOL, nor had I ever seen a COBOL program, other than in a book, and literally opening it up in the university bookstore to see, oh, what does COBOL look like? Open up the book, page through it, oh, it's one of those, sequential language, fair enough. At the time, I could program in what? Fortran, Snowball, Lisp, Forth, APL, Basic, and a few others. Easy, through, easy Tree, Dial 260, and a number of other languages. Immediately in the interview, I responded, yes, I can, I can program in COBOL. I got the job. I was due to start on Monday. I went off to the university bookstore, picked up two or three books on COBOL. We didn't have COBOL for dummies then. I wish they had, because that was me to a T. I certainly knew nothing about the language. And over that weekend, three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's all I did, was I read these books. On Monday morning, I was programming in COBOL. It is not a difficult language. It was designed to be easy. It was designed to be simple. So we don't need to go out and create university courses to create COBOL programmers. All we need to do 
is turn to any competent programmer and say, next week you're going to be modifying some legacy systems or you're going to be looking at some legacy systems or you're going to be analyzing some legacy systems or you're going to be figuring out what these legacy systems do. And they're all written in COBOL, so I suggest you brush up on your COBOL skills. Here are three books. Take two days off. Just sit in your corner, drink coffee, and read. And at the end of that time, you'll know how to program in COBOL. Or you'll know enough to be able to look at a program and read and figure it out what it's doing. I once programmed in Assembler. I'd never learned Assembler before. I got the machine code that this, the Assembler had created, and I went through and read it bit by bit by bit. Found the necessary comparison that we were looking for. It was basically a switch. We made the modification in machine code, Assembler. Uh, we ran the program, and it worked. Did I know how to program an assembler? No. Was I smart enough to figure out what it was doing? Yes. Why? Because I had the documentation. I had a manual. COBOL is the same way. COBOL is not difficult. If you know how to program in BASIC, you know how to program in COBOL. Yes. The techies are listening to me and going, oh my God, he's so wrong. Uh, yeah, I am. Do a degree. But you know what? I did it in three days. And I'm not that good. I was not that great a programmer. Anyone can do that who, who knows computer systems. Certainly, if you can program in something like C++ or Python, or what's the latest one? I just heard the name the other day. Ooh, I'm down. I know something about it. Rust. Whatever's out there. If you can program, then you can learn how to program in COBOL. There's no need to go to a course. A couple of good books, you can figure out how to do this. But legacy systems aren't just COBOL. Here's some of the other languages that could be considered legacy systems. Adibus, Fortran, Focus, Assembler, Forth, Lisp, Snowball, Mantis, Basic. And there are a thousand and one different versions of Basic out there. Spreadsheets are a legacy system if they haven't been updated in years and written by someone who's no longer in the company. Uh, load modules, EasyTree, Delta, Kix tables, Pascal, PL1, Natural, SQL, Sync. You get the idea. If it's an old language and you haven't heard about it, you can classify it as a legacy system. And then my favorite, of course, is APL, a programming language. Now, APL is different from COBOL. You can't learn APL over three days. It's going to take you more time than that. And APL is difficult to document. Two or three lines of well-constructed APL is equivalent to several thousand lines of COBOL. It's quite often that you write it, and if you determine a week later that it has a bug, this APL program that you've written, written one line of code sometimes, you have to go back and you have to start from scratch. What was this thing meant to do? Forget about changing the code. You might be able to do that, but it's unlikely. Basically, you have to start from scratch. You have to put the skull sweat into it for a couple of days sometimes to come up with a single line of APL code. But that line of APL code is more productive than several days, several weeks worth of programming in COBOL. It's a, a most peculiar language. It is definitely, definitely a legacy system language, and it's definitely out there. How do legacy systems get started? Well, like any program, they get started clean and sweet. The lines of a old program in the beginning, when we first designed it, first wrote it, are simple. Data comes in here. We're going to produce this process to manipulate the data. We need to get a piece of data from over there. We bring that in. 
We do the processing. We spit out one or two pieces of data into two other databases, and then we produce a report. Clean and simple. And that's been part of Y2K problem right from the start. We didn't really understand how programs evolve. When we take a nice, clean, pristine program that we wrote a couple of weeks ago, and a manager or a client comes in and says, you know, we need to add in a feature. Now the program slowly but surely gets ugly because what we're doing is we're kludging it, we're patching it. We're saying, okay, we didn't get the data from this location earlier, but now we need to do. So let's write in a retrieval program that grabs the data from this system and brings it into the program, and then we can manipulate it. Other things happen. Uh, maybe the program that we're working on, the legacy system that's reasonably clean and all the rest, is accessing a particular file. And a part of the accessing the file, it needs to know where the data elements of that file are. Fair enough. Along comes some other need inside the organization, and they identify that data file, not the legacy system, just the data file, and say, you know what, if we added two or three extra fields in that file, then it could serve the needs of these two other systems that we're in the middle of developing. So we go in and modify the data file. Now we have to go back in to the legacy system, and we have to change the data definitions to make sure that it realizes there's extra data in that data file that we don't necessarily need. But we have to accommodate it because it's there. So slowly but surely, the elegant lines of the original system that we wrote start getting confused and they start getting intertwingled with everything else that's going on in another part of the system. Phone systems are a good example of that. And I'm not talking about the new phone systems. I'm talking about the old ones where we used to string telephone wires down through a city. In the beginning, the lines are nice and clean. Linesmen have put them up. They look elegant. They look clean. They're smart. The lines don't cross over each other. They're all parallel. It's easy to understand where a line is going to. The signs of a nice, clean system. And then people start tapping into that system. They say, oh, we can pick up a line. We can tap onto this line here. We can run this other line down this alley, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And before you know it, it's a mishmash. If you want some good examples of that, not to pick on Manila, but... If you've ever been to Manoa and you look at the phone system there, the wires in the streets, it's a rat's nest of connections. Now, if you start thinking about this particular legacy system, stringing telephone wires as a legacy system, the answer is not to go out and hire more linesmen to restring the lines. Well, the answer is to redo the entire system, replace it with a cell tower to give everybody cell phones, to make it digital so there are no wires anymore at all. That's the legacy system problem in a nutshell. It's not that you want to go back and modify the existing legacy system to meet new demands. What you need to do, what we need to do, is go back and redesign what it is we're trying to do and see if we can solve it with modern technology different types of solutions. If you want to clean up old telephone wires where people are tapped into them and it looks like a rat's nest, the answer is not to put up more telephone poles. The answer is to take them all down 
and replace them with a single cell phone tower that can take care of tens of thousands of people, not stringing up more wire. And therein lies a secret with legacy systems. It's not the code, it's the system design. Now, if we start actually looking at the levels of complexity when designing things, I think it's informative. I'm going to identify four different levels of building a system. Level number one, if you want to build a system for your own department, in other words, someone has come up with a need, a, a computing need inside your department, and they turn to you and say, solve this business problem, will you? And you look at it, and you, you, know, you do your business analysis, and you say, okay, we, you know, we could do that, but it's just for our department? Yeah, just for your department. Okay, that's going to take me, let's just slap a number on it. It's going to take me one month of effort. Forget about which language I'm using. Forget about what file systems I'm using. Forget about the type of computer I'm using. All we've done is say, here's a need, and we've determined that about a month of effort will generate a system. I can produce a new system in about a month. Okay. Level two is when you take that same system and you say, okay, we're not going to produce it just for our department. We're going to take that system, that thing that we designed, and we want it to work for the entire organization. So you're moving from one department to roll this thing out throughout the entire organization. How big is the organization, Peter? Don't get hung up on the details. All you know is that it's going from a department to an organization, from a handful of users to more than a handful of users. Let's keep it simple. How big a resource problem is that? How much effort is going to be required? Let's make it simple. Let's just say it's 10 times more difficult. It's going to be 10 times the effort. So we're moving from one month of effort to 10 months of effort. That's eh, reasonable. It's not unreasonable. It's a rule of thumb. It's an approximation. But it's about right. I've worked on systems that we had for a department and then rolled it out throughout the entire organization. Ten times more complicated, ten times more development time is actually lowballing it. It's, uh, in my, based upon my experience, it would be a little bit higher. But I want to keep it conservative because we have four levels to go through. Let's go to the next level. Instead of creating a brand new system, what we want to do is replace an existing legacy system. We want to build a brand new system to replace a existing legacy systems. How much work is that? Well, that's about 10 times the work effort that was involved in building the one system for the entire organization. How do I come to that? Well, you have to figure out what the old system was doing. And typically, there's no documentation. So a large part of your initial work was trying to figure out what in the name of all that's holy was that first system doing? I didn't write it. I don't have the documentation. Jim, the guy who wrote it, is no longer with the organization. In fact, we've gone through four different programming teams, development teams, since this system was designed. We sort of know how to maintain it. How do we know that? Well, because it sort of works. Any system that's been around for 20 years has become stable, quote unquote, to some degree. So the system works. We're not in there all the time. We might be tinkering with it a little bit. But if you want me to replace the entire thing, then I have to understand everything about the old system. 
that's a significant amount of work. If you're replacing a payroll system, a hundred times worth, a hundred months worth of effort, that's a little bit more than eight years worth of effort to replace a payroll system. Uh, put 10 people on the project, so you're looking at eight, 10 months worth of effort with 10 people. Sounds about right. But then it gets very, very complicated very, very quickly if we want to say, we're going to build a brand new system. This is level floor, four of complexity. We're going to build a brand new system to replace a mission-critical legacy system. That's a whole different kettle of fish. And if we multiply the existing, we, what, what we were at, about eight years' worth of effort, multiply that by 10 again, not unreasonable. Now we're looking at 80 years' worth of effort all of a sudden, that's become a huge project. And part of the reason it's so big is the mission-critical part. If it's mission-critical, it means that the existing system we have is vital to the organization. So if we're going to be replacing it with something else, that something else needs to work. And if it doesn't work, there are dire consequences. Proper risk management says we can't afford dire consequences. So we have to put in extra effort to make sure that what we're doing is correct. We have to, it's belt and suspenders. It's doubling up on effort, focusing on risk management, because we cannot put the organization at risk. Now, to put some real bones and meat onto this framework, let's talk about a real world example of attempting to replace a mission critical payroll system. Up in Canada, in 2009, there was a project. It's known as the Phoenix Payroll System. And forget about the vendor. Who the vendor was doesn't matter. And I don't want to get into whether it was a vendor problem. We're not going to talk about whose problem it was, or rather whose fault it was. We're simply going to talk about the complexity of the system. What the Canadian government attempted to do was to consolidate the payroll systems from about 100 different government departments from coast to coast to coast. There were about 101 different payroll systems. And the grand idea was, and they were all legacy systems. The grand idea is that they would all be consolidated into a single payroll system. Now, part of the complexity of this was that there were 105 different labor agreements involved in this. 100 departments, 105 different union agreements as to how people get paid and what their salary rates are and what their overtime rates are and what their sick days are. You get the idea of vacation days, all of these complexities replicated 105 times. In total, there were some 80,000 processing rules that they had to factor in. And the idea was that they were going to factor, roll all of this into a single system. Now, when they started on this, they knew it would be big. And their initial estimate was incredibly low, though. The initial estimate in 2011, after they had taken a bit of a look at this, well, $5.7 million. Now, 
turns out $5.7 million when you start to talk about rolling out a new payroll system is a trivial amount. We should have known that, but we didn't. Jump ahead a little bit. Ten years later, that system is still not working 100%. For a long time, people were simply not getting paid. There were people literally not getting paid, not getting paid for months on end, no paycheck, because the system wasn't working. What they had done was they'd started the rollout before it was completed, and there was no parallel processing. In other words, they didn't run the old systems next to the new system for an extended period of time to make sure that the new system was replicating what the old system was producing. In a mission-critical system, I can't think of a bigger crime. Uh, if it's mission-critical, you cannot roll it out until it's guaranteed to be working. We didn't do that. How bad is it? There is at least one suicide attributed to the failure of the system. Someone who was so financially strapped was so stressed out by not being paid, etc., that they committed suicide. And it was attributed to the poor rollout of the system. Now, I've heard of system failures before in the past. I'd never heard of a suicide before because the system wasn't rolled out on time. What we do is important. It's important to people's lives. And when we have mission-critical systems, then it becomes even more important that we get our act together and figure out how to do this stuff. Uh, I mentioned the original cost in 2011 was $5.7 million. The final amount to date, $854 million spent on this, trying to replace existing legacy systems with a brand new legacy system, <laughs> with a brand new system, rather. The projected cost for this system is going to be is currently 2.2 billion dollars. Large systems are complicated, and we forget that uh, at our peril. Y2K was about large systems. Fixing them is dangerous. What what is a system? Basics, and I'm going to go very very simple on this. Any system can be de defined as follows. First, we label it. So it's system X that we're talking about. And systems are always input, process, output. That's it. Yeah, I can get a little bit more detail than that. We can get into the weeds. But basically, any system has a bunch of data, datums. Datum 1, datum 2, datum 3, all the way up. Who knows how many pieces of data go into a system. And then they get processed. Remember those 80,000 processing rules for the Phoenix system? They get processed somehow and it produces an output. That is a system. If a legacy system is out there, it takes this format. All systems take this format. Input, process, output. What's involved in converting a legacy system to something else, to replace a legacy system with a brand new system? Well, the first step, and this is where Y2K comes back. First step is knowing what the system is doing, step zero. What is it doing? And by that we mean is, what data is it taking in? How is it manipulating that data? And what exactly is the output from the system? Now, with legacy systems, that can be complicated. It's complicated for a variety of reasons. We don't have all the documentation. The people who wrote the systems aren't around. Well, the system might be someplace we're not even really aware what it's doing. It might simply be a black box. Data is going in and stuff is coming out. 
how it's manipulating the data, we don't really know. All we know is that we've been doing that for 20 years, and if we take it out, the things stop working. If we put it back in, it continues to work. So we have to figure out what is it doing. And to do that, sometimes we have to reverse engineer it. That takes an awful amount of time. This is where the complexity comes in. Step one, simplify it. Okay, we know what the system is doing. We know that it's gotten complicated. At the core of the system, what is it doing? Can we consolidate files? They may be in 20, 30 different locations, all this data that we're talking about. Can we simplify it? Can we make one single input file into the system? Does that even make sense? Once we've simplified it, then identify what data the new system will use. One of the things that happens with legacy systems is this. Let's assume you have a thousand lines of code. Someone comes in and says, look, we don't need to do that anymore, but we want to do this now. So go in and modify the system so that it stops doing what it did before and does something else. And what the programmer does is the following. I've done this. You go in and you jump over the dead code, the junk DNA of the program, if you want. Say, so we're not going to be doing this anymore. So just step over it. We're not going to be making that call to that subroutine anymore. Just leave it out of the processing. Hide it from the computer in a way. Just jump over it. And instead, do the, insert this module, this piece of code. And sooner or later, your legacy system is filled with this. All of these dead zones of code that aren't being used. But you don't know that unless you actually read the program and figure out what is living code, what is dead code. Now, in your new system, you don't want to replicate the dead code. Why is a programmer doing this? Why do I jump over code? Well, it worked once. And who knows? Maybe next week my manager says, oh, you know that piece of code that we took out last week? I want to do that again. In which case, I just have to go back into the program and reactivate that segment of code. I don't have to rewrite it. To rewrite it, I have to know exactly what it's doing much faster, much safer, just to jump over it and test to make sure that when I jumped over it, I wasn't cutting out some process that was important somewhere else. So we have to identify what parts of the old system we're actually going to move forward. What data are we actually going to use in the new system? Step three, we have to figure out what the new system is going to do. I mentioned earlier that one of the problems with legacy systems is that they are defined by the available technology. A lot of the systems that we used used flat files. We couldn't use something like the cloud because the cloud didn't exist. Today, if we were writing the same system, we wouldn't use flat files. Why? Because flat files were inefficient. Today, we have something better. A lot of legacy system conversions has to do with what are the new technologies, the new solutions that we could implement to do what we did before 20, 30 years ago that would work much, much better today if we just did it this way. Solutions that weren't available back then. That's why this notion of going back into unemployment systems with more and more COBOL programmers to try and fix lines of code to make the unemployment system work better, uh, just not feasible. The problem isn't that the code isn't working. 
The problem is, is that the system can't handle the workload. You don't fix a system by fixing a line of code. You fix a system by redefining the system. Step four, we have to write the new system. You actually have to start writing the code that is going to be the new system. Uh, maybe it's not writing. Maybe it's just taking an existing payroll system produced by a vendor, an off-the-shelf product, and saying, okay, how can we use the new system to do what we were doing before? Step five, we have to test it. We have to test and make sure that what the new system is doing matches what the old system was doing, if that's our goal. Sometimes when we move from legacy systems to new systems, we say, you know that thing that we were doing before? We're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to convert that component. We're not going to worry about it. We're just going to stop doing that. We can get that same information from some other system elsewhere in the organization. So we have to verify that what we've done, what we've created, matches the old system. In the Phoenix payroll, that did not happen at all. Now understand, step zero, one, two, and three. In other words, the know the system, simplify the system, identify the data, and define the new system. Those four steps could have been done during Y2K. Why? Well, we were in there doing that anyway. We were in step zero, knowing the system so that we knew where the dates were and we knew what to fix. We knew where the system was impacting, uh, where it was moving data around in the larger organization. We understood our legacy systems to that point. We did simplify some of the legacy systems, at least in our mind and on paper, as to what the system was doing. Step one, zero, one, two, and three was the missed opportunity in Y2K. We could have looked at the legacy systems that we were examining with the eye to when Y2K is done, when we've met our existing datas, uh, deadlines in the year 2000, then we can come back and see if we can replace these things. What we didn't do at the time, and rightly so, we didn't try and expand the scope of Y2K. We couldn't. We couldn't say we were going to replace our payroll system if we thought that we didn't have the time to do it. Because the Y2K deadline was a hard, fixed deadline. If someone had started to suggest that, you know, now's the time to replace all our legacy systems, they would have been thrown out the window. It was not the time. It was the time to take note, but it wasn't time to actually do the work. In step five, we're testing the new system, we're comparing it to the old system, and based upon the answer, if what, we're, what we've created is matching the old system, then we can move on. We've done the job. If the comparison didn't work, if the new system isn't matching the old system, if the person working in this particular department isn't getting the same uh, paycheck every week as they were getting before, that system's not correct. We have to go back and figure out where the problem is, rewrite the system, test it again, and start that loop. Write, test, compare, and follow the instructions. If the comparison doesn't match what we're expecting, we go back and we rewrite. And finally, step seven, collect our accolades. All of this has to do with how we see legacy systems and where we see the problem to be. The problem is not in the code. It's in the design of the systems. Y2K was about fixing code. It was not about redesigning systems.
And that is where the mistake is being made when people say, we have legacy systems, we don't have COBOL programmers, we need to get more COBOL programmers. That's not the answer. The answer is you need to bite the bullet and replace your systems and understand that it will not be cheap. Writing a new system, eh, $5.7 million, right? Fixing an old system, especially when it's uh, mission critical, close to a billion dollars. It's not cheap. But here's the reality. At, apps, at some point, at some point, we absolutely have to get rid of our legacy systems. We can't keep running these things forever. Y2K was the best of times and the worst of times for legacy systems. It was the best of time because we're in there already looking at them. We should have been taking more notes than we did. It was the absolute worst of times to start replacing them. Now, some organizations did do some legacy system replacements. They bit the bullet and literally threw the old systems out and said, okay, we're going to bring a brand new system in and we're going to rush it in. It's going to do the core of what it needs to do, uh, the, the triage, what must it absolutely do? And we use that as to our advantage and we got rid of some old legacy systems. Some of the larger ones where we would have placed the entire project at risk, we did not do. But what we also did not do was take enough notes so that in the year 2000 and beyond, we could have started to look to replacing our legacy systems. The unemployment systems in the States, in uh, New Jersey, should have been at least put on the schedule for early 2000 to be replaced and not waiting around until we had this black swan event of COVID-19 and mass unemployment. Summary. Replacing system, legacy systems is incredibly difficult, risky and costly. We absolutely must retire them at some point. If you have legacy systems in your organization, there has to be some type of project to start saying, let's get the groundwork done so that we know what we're replacing when we finally have the budget to do so, because it will not be cheap. Uh, it's not a coding problem. It is fundamentally a design problem. Understand the, the key thing with legacy systems is not that it's using old code. It's using old technology, old technological constraints. That's what hampered those systems. That's what makes them less flexible than we're used to today. There was no cloud back there. Uh, there were flat files and variations between. Uh, building for the future retirement of any system should be a part of the system specification. When you're building a system today, you sh there should be, in my opinion anyway, uh, a plan say, okay, how long will this thing last? Is it good for five years, 10 years, 20 years? I mean, at some point we have to say, no, no, it's not going to work around that long. So what's the plan for keeping it simple enough to be able to replace in the future? Where are the bottlenecks? How often do we go back to our old systems and say, look, we have better solutions out there today, better ways of doing things. Should we be changing a system, even if it's only five years old, to take advantage of new solutions? That's not in our systems thinking process as yet. Y2K was not the time to automatically embark on large legacy system replacement projects. It simply wasn't. That would be scope creep of the highest order. And it was not something we could have done. And it wasn't something we did. For the most part, we were very, very cautious about legacy systems. Did we fix them or did we replace them? Many, many times we decided we had to fix them. We couldn't afford to replace them, although it would have been nice to do. Y2K was the last opportunity to lay the groundwork. We should have 
thought about that more. I was I was involved in Y2K for more than a decade, 100%. And I can honestly say that in my entire thought process, I never once thought about preparing the groundwork for replacing legacy systems after Y2K was involved, uh, after Y2K was complete. That's my failing. I wish I'd thought about it. It would have made a, another good angle and approach to Y2K. I was so focused on the actual two-digit year problem and getting that fixed, I never once thought about laying the groundwork for legacy system replacement. Mia culpa, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa. This is a bi-monthly podcast series. So far we have, this is the 11th episode. It will continue for a while. Premium content is on www.vimeo.com slash on demand slash Y2K. The weekly interviews that we're doing are filling in the gaps, giving the real life stories of people who are out there actually doing the work. The podcast can be found on Podbean and iTunes and a couple of other places, I'm sure. I'm not even sure how many different places it's listed right now. We could definitely use your support. Like I said, we have about 400 regular subscribers. I'd like to see 4,000. Uh, it'll certainly keep this going. It'll allow me to entice a couple of the people I'd like to interview who have held off for various reasons. I'd love to offer them a bottle of scotch or something for the time that it takes to do some of these interviews. Again, this has been Peter Diager with uh, Y2K and Autobiography, a look back at what Y2K was, wasn't, and could have been. Be good, folks. Be safe. And yeah, we'll get through all of this. Take care. <laughs>